All right. Well, as I mentioned, we will continue our series on the book of Proverbs tonight, and specifically this mini-series on the topic of wealth. I mentioned last week that the book of Proverbs has a great deal to say about wealth. A lot of Proverbs deal with the, the issue of wealth. And we have to admit that unless you have taken some kind of vow to poverty, and you're living somewhere out there in the Mojave Desert under a tent, or under the, you know, under the stars, I should say, you have been a beneficiary of wealth. You are living much better today than your ancestors did a hundred years ago. Everyone in this room is benefiting from prosperity. Everyone here is, is wealthier than their ancestors were 100, 200, 500 years ago. So how are we to understand that? How are we to understand this process of prosperity, of, of growing in wealth, especially in an age where there is a lot of competing ideas? And, and in fact, today, to some extent, we see these two big problems. I referred to them last week, either this idolization of money and whether that's in an ethical kind of materialism or in greedy cronyism, or you have this attitude that's growing today where if you do have wealth, you're, all, you're immediately suspect and you've automatically committed some kind of crime if you are a wealthy person. That's growing in our world today. Moreover, with the whole ideology of, of socialism promotes this idea that, that, you know what, yes, perhaps we've tried to promote the idea of equality of opportunity, but that's not good enough. Now we must have equality of outcome. That no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you invest, you need and you, you deserve the same outcome as the next person, and that there should be no divergence there. No receipt of anything should be based on merit or on anything related to your personal investment of diligence, wisdom, and so on and so forth. That kind of ideology is very popular today, and of course, that is the kind of socialist ideology that leads to the kind of revolutions that have happened in in history, and certainly it seems like the younger generations especially don't study history, so they don't know where these things are going when I was considering this topic, even for tonight, I, I did look at some statistics on prosperity. And it's interesting to note this, that when you look at the world, the countries in the world that are most prosperous and compare them with the countries that are least prosperous, you come to this very uh, inescapable conclusion that the countries that are most prosperous in the world, on this map represented by the darker green shades, are by and large those countries which have been most impacted by the Protestant Reformation. It's not to say that everybody believes in the, the full scale of Protestant theology, but the Reformation had its greatest impact in, in the northern European countries and then, of course, in uh, the Western world as a, as a whole, and that's where you see today that the impact of, of the Protestant, what is called the Protestant work ethic, 
leading after generations of this impact and influence to the prosperity uh, that you see represented here on this map. And if you would just ask most people, even in our society today, where would you like to live if you couldn't live in this country of the United States, most people would pick one of these green-colored countries and they represent the influence of the Protestant Reformation. And then when you go beyond that and to the countries that are shaded more lightly, light green or, or a lime green or orange or yellow, those are countries that have had a decreasing amount of influence from the Protestant Reformation. You see a lot of Roman Catholic countries that show the, the impact of their theology, of that theology in the, the weak prosperity of the residents or the, the inhabitants of, of those countries. And then, of course, you get into other religions, uh, Islam and so on and so forth, Eastern Orthodoxy, and you see there, too, uh, a lesser, a, a decreasing amount of prosperity. Now, in our day and age, of course, many will say this has nothing to do with the Protestant work ethic. Uh, this is just has to do with natural resources, or this just has to do with that issue or this issue. And the answer is always theology is at the heart of this. This is the result of basic worldviews of God, of our role as human beings, our relationship to God, and our understanding of what He has, what he has created us to be and to do in this world. Theology has everything to do with this discussion. And so when we think of that, and we think, okay, theology is ultimately what drives the outcome we have to turn back to the Scriptures and say, okay, what, what, what explains this? What, what is at the heart? How are we to understand prosperity, wealth? How are we to understand poverty? How do we look at these things? Is there a theological explanation? And Scripture certainly says that there, there is a theological explanation. And certainly there are exceptions and qualifications but there is a theological explanation to prosperity. The book of Proverbs contains much of that explanation. Let me review the four principles that we discussed last week. When we consider the book of Proverbs and we look at the, the Proverbs in their proper context and look at them against the backdrop of the entire book and, and categorize them, we can come up with these first four principles. Number one, wealth is a blessing from the Lord. The book of Proverbs does not treat the world, the resources of this world, or material wealth as inherently evil. In fact, the book of Proverbs says that it isn't good to be poor. The book of Proverbs doesn't hold up poverty as if that is what makes a person more godly. Instead, it teaches that wealth is a blessing from the Lord. That God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, God has given man the ability to make wealth. That comes from God. And it's important to recognize that because if we miss that point, then we look on wealth and its accumulation or its growth as something that we ourselves do. That God is ambivalent 
And then what happens in that is that we just enjoy that wealth for ourselves. We fail to realize that wealth is a means to an end. And that means is to, give us, to, to motivate us to give God the glory and the gratitude that he is worthy of for being a good God who gives good things to enjoy. Wealth is a blessing from the Lord. Number two, we also looked at the fact that wealth is a consequence of wisdom and diligence. While there are exceptions, as I've noted, that we are not to see the, the, the growth and prosperity as purely arbitrary in this world. Just chance. The random collision of atoms. Not at all. Proverbs wants us to understand that by and large, there is an explanation for it. God does bless his people with wealth because of wisdom and diligence. And there is a cause and effect order in this world, and that is the cause and effect order of what we call sowing and reaping. That if you, if you live a certain way, if you pursue wisdom and, and exercise self-discipline and delayed gratification, that God has constructed this universe in such a way that you can count on, with exceptions, you can count on a certain kind of fruit. You sow the seeds of one kind of grain, you will get the harvest of that kind of grain. That's the world that God has designed. And so we are to understand that wealth is a consequence of wisdom and diligence. It is not random. Number three, wealth is thwarted by folly. This is the same principle, but in in reverse, that there is also an explanation. Of course, not without exception. We're going to talk about that tonight. But there is a reason why some do poor. There is a reason why some are in poverty And we are to understand, according to the logic and the order of the book of Proverbs, that poverty can be the result of a whole host, a whole myriad of poor, foolish decisions. And that someone who finds themselves entrenched in poverty is supposed to ask themselves the question, is this poverty the result of my foolish choices? And then to take responsibility and ownership of those foolish choices. Of course, today you you have people who are desperately trying to overturn this rule and who believe that there is no connection. They can live a life of laziness. They can rack up all kinds of credit card debt. And they have should have a the same guaranteed outcome in life as the person who exercises carefulness, who delays gratification, who works hard. The whole young generation of men in our society today just does not agree with this and so believes that there should be no connection between folly, laziness, hedonism, risk-taking, and the poverty that comes as a result of those things. Proverbs corrects that view and says, no, wealth is thwarted by folly. There is a consequence. Number four, we also talked last week, we noticed from, we observed from the book of Proverbs that wealth has limited value. We needed to recognize that, that the, the, the wisdom of Scripture teaches us that as good as wealth is in terms of making life better and, 
and now enabling man to flourish and to benefit others around him, there are still things that are greater in value than wealth. Wisdom is much greater in value than wealth. We talked about character and integrity is far better than wealth. We talked about also family and relationships as being more precious and valuable than wealth. Well, we have another four principles to get to tonight. And we'll go through these four principles. One of them that we will look at, uh, when I get to it, I'll explain it. We will look at actually in greater detail next week. So even though we're somewhat ending our mini-series on this topic tonight, a portion of this is going to be its own focus next week. And I want to say that because... The discussion about wealth is is not over tonight. We will touch on it next week. But let's get to these final four in this mini-series. Number five, our fifth principle is this. Wealth is best acquired slowly. Wealth is best acquired slowly. Proverbs takes a decidedly negative view about quick and easy wealth. Now, that's not because wealth in itself is evil, but rather the pathway to quick and easy wealth is often evil. And so that's why Proverbs takes this very clear negative view about those who would seek to acquire wealth quickly. Wealth by haste, according to biblical wisdom, must be rejected Because of the propensity it has to involve fraud, as we're going to see, to exploit neighbors, to imperil the well-being of one's family, to numb one's senses to the dangers of risk, and to inflame one's overconfidence. Proverbs point to these issues and says, this is why a, a hasteful effort to gather wealth is dangerous and must be shunned. On the other hand, honorable wealth is attained the very opposite way. It is attained through careful planning, hard work, patience, and the delay of gratification. You see, the important thing to remember here is that the the, the, the wise men in Proverbs, Solomon and the other wise men who contribute to this book, recognize that we live in a context that is outside of the Garden of Eden. And you remember what happened that precipitated that move outside of the Garden. Man sinned. And even though he was to work in the Garden, in that innocence, his sin brought curse. Brought curse upon him, but brought curse upon the world. And as a result, God said, this is now my will for man's labor. You will labor among thorns and thistles. And you will enjoy the fruit of your labor only through the sweat of your brow. That's the way that is my will, the Lord says, for life outside the garden. Now, an effort to gain wealth by haste is the effort to circumvent what God has revealed as his will for work in this world, in this sin-cursed world. It is the idea that we can somehow gather wealth apart from thorns and thistles, that we can gather wealth without the sweat of our brow. 
It is a rejection of what God has revealed to be his way for the proper attainment of wealth. Now, let's look at some Proverbs that warn us against the wealth by haste approach. Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. Wealth obtained by fraud. In other words, by circumventing God's laws and trying to get it quickly, cutting corners, breaking laws, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers it by labor increases it. Solomon is very clearly saying that wealth is increased in an honorable and lasting way when it comes as the result of hard work. Proverbs 21 verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. What Solomon is teaching here is this, easy come, easy go, that the one who acquires wealth or attempts to acquire wealth easily will only see it go easily. One commentator, Bruce Waltke, stated this in response to Proverbs 21 verse 5. He said, we should assume that the diligent creatively plan within the framework of God's revealed will and by nature act accordingly. Stop there. He's talking about the planning of the diligent. And it means that those who are wise will take into account how God has ordered this universe. Those who are diligent will recognize this is the pattern. This is how God wants me to work. This is how God wants me to to acquire wealth in this world. It is through working with thorns and thistles. And it is through the sweat of my brow. Therefore, I will, I will submit to that will of God and I will work within those parameters. But, Waltke goes on to say, marking the antithesis, the one who hastens to get rich acts without reckoning with the divine order. Those who seek to get wealthy, he's saying, in a quick way are those who are trying to circumvent God's revealed will about how work and wealth work in this world. Another example is Proverbs 28, verse 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28, verse 22, just two verses later. A man with an evil, a selfish or a miserly eye, Hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. All in all, the book of Proverbs teaches that any kind of impetuance or impulsiveness, haste, is always a negative characteristic. Impulsiveness or haste in speech, impulsiveness and haste in making decisions. The book of Proverbs always frowns upon that that hastiness as a negative quality and, and takes that same principle into your understanding of how wealth works and how it can be legitimately increased. Now, in our day, nothing illustrates a wealth-by-haste approach like gambling. 
In our day, as in many other previous generations, gambling is the epitome of the attempt to gain wealth quickly and easily. What is gambling? You could define it this way. Gambling is the risking of something you value in the hope of getting something of even greater value in return with little or no investment of effort. So it risks value to get something of greater value and it invests as little as possible in order to achieve or win that greater value. There is no logic or planning in gambling. Anyone who knows about the gambling industry always knows that the statistical odds are always stacked against the gambler. I mean, you just look at it statistically, it's a foolish thing to do with your money. Absolutely. You're better off putting it in the bank and getting 0.0001% give you today. Because if you put your money in a casino, what are the statistical odds that you'll get anything back? It's always in the negative. There's no logic to it. There's no planning. Instead, success comes down to what is called luck. Not wisdom, not diligence, but luck. And the gambler's ability to cheat the odds. And it's sad to note that gambling takes in over $150 billion a year in this country. $150 billion, and it's probably much more. That is what is known. There's a whole lot of gambling that is not reported. Moreover, one of the sad things about gambling too, all kinds of advertisements for this, but I don't know if you knew this, but as I was looking into this, the gambling industry is exempt from having to tell the truth in their advertisements. They are exempt from truth-telling. It's a whole different thing than what you read in a menu or on an ingredients package on a can of tomato soup where, you're, where they're bound by law to report what is in that tomato soup. The gambling industry is exempt from truth-telling because... If the truth were known, no one would engage in it except those who are foolish. And what gambling does in particular is that it exploits the poor and the desperate. According to a, uh, a, a research study done by the University at Buffalo Research Institute of Addictions, they came up with this statement several years ago in 2014. They stated this, being financially disadvantaged seems to cause people to risk what little money they have in hopes of turning it into a larger sum, thinking that in turn, that in turn would improve their financial situation. Sadly, as so often happens, their hopes are not realized and they become worse off than before they gambled. Forms of gambling that were popular with such individuals include sports betting, bingo, dog or horse racing, casinos, Lotteries, gambling online, office pools, raffles, as well as many others. Well, approximately 5% of people living in neighborhoods with low poverty levels would have serious gambling problems. 
that number jumped to more than 11% in very low socioeconomic neighborhoods, particularly where poverty was at its worst, with a high rate of unemployed, high numbers of people living on government assistance, and generally run-down and filthy surroundings. In other words, those who are known to be the worst gamblers, those most addicted, are the poorest. And what's sad is that governments not only legalize gambling, but actively promote it, eager to fill their own coffers with money that they know is coming out of the pockets of the poor. You want to talk about a social injustice? I mean, it's one of the, you just look at the social injustices that are really out there today, the promotion of gambling in poor communities, and put that right up there with fatherless homes, the the sale of alcohol, drugs, and abortion. You want to talk about what what creates poverty in the world? Just look at those things. Those are the, the social injustices of our day. But as you know, the social justice movement cares little about those things. I mean, if you want to be real about social justice, say, we're after the things that, that, that lead to poverty most. Gambling, drugs and alcohol, promiscuous couples, conceiving children, and then the father either leaves or they abort the baby. Those are the greatest injustices in this world. And so if you want to say, okay, that's what we define as, as our target in the social justice movement, great, then sign me up. But as you know, the, the big social justice movements in our society today care nothing of those things, nothing at all. And what's worse is that many Christians will engage in something like gambling, believe it to be a neutral form of recreation, and will parrot the the propaganda that says that, well, as, as long as I'm just using this for recreation, there is no difference between spending money in, in gambling or going to a baseball game. But participation in such so-called recreation only bolsters an industry that capitalizes on sinful desperation. And while Christians often will claim that they have their gambling habits under control, and they will be sure to step out before it leads to enslavement, they must realize that with every cast of the dice, they are tempting the devil to tempt them. The gambling industry is the epitome of what Proverbs is talking about when it says that those who make haste to gain wealth will only find themselves in want. Jim Newhouser, in his commentary on Proverbs, writes this, Gambling has harmful effects on society in terms of increased crime, substance abuse, debt, suicide, and the breakup of families. Gambling is poor stewardship of God's resources. Only two things can happen to you when you gamble, and both are bad. You may lose which means you have foolishly wasted your money, or you may win, in which case you have defrauded others by taking their money without earning it. End quote. That is a great summary of what Proverbs teaches regarding the evils of wealth by haste. On the other hand, nothing serves better as a better illustration of gaining wealth by plodding as growing it through one's family. So, If gambling is the worst example of wealth by haste, let's look at the best example 
of wealth by plotting. And I want to put this out there, men. That the best illustration of wealth by plotting is to grow it through one's family. And Proverbs hints at this. Proverbs hints at what should be viewed really as the best wealth-creating strategy. And it comes down to this. What does it mean to grow wealth by plotting through one's family? It means leaving behind a legacy of spiritual and material prosperity for your family. It means a heritage of wise living in both the spiritual and material world that is passed on as an inheritance from one generation to the next. Consider Proverbs 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Even Proverbs 19, verse 14, which recognizes that a good wealth, that a good uh, wife is better than an inheritance, nonetheless says this house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. You can't get that through inheritance. (laughs) But he does recognize, Solomon recognizes here, that house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. It's hinting at what should really be the strategy that we have for ourselves. Because what this does is it, it looks at delayed gratification. It looks at long term planning in its best. Working hard to leave an inheritance for one's children is the essence of long-term planning and delayed gratification. It requires a man to prioritize his own family's long-term needs instead of spending all the reward for his labor on himself. And you have a lot of that happening with men today. They may work hard, they may be diligent, and then all of a sudden they they reap the reward of their hard work. But what do they do? They spend it all on themselves. And they look at their lives and say, I've got 15 years left. I'm going to live it up so that by the time I die, I've got one penny left in my bank account. Instead, thinking of the heritage that we as fathers are to leave for our children, we must think in terms of both the spiritual and the material realms. It challenges us to prepare our families to be financially self-sufficient, able to survive and thrive independent from charity and social assistance. And man, this is very important, and it's something that especially you young fathers need to be thinking about. In a world, in a a system that we're in today, where the government is actively trying to sponsor dependency, where its goal is to buy your vote by creating a dependency upon it for flourishing, It is important for us as Christian fathers, as those who fear the Lord, to take responsibility on ourselves and to set our families up for for stability in the years to come so that they will not be dependent upon the government. That is the worst thing that we can do to our children, is to raise them up in a way, having spent all the money ourselves, to raise them up where they they, they are just naturally swept into some kind of socialistic ideology. But even in this, be careful, as Proverbs 20, verse 21 says, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. 
In other words, it's not just about making that financial transaction at the end of your life. It is about preparing your children in the ways of wisdom so that they understand the proper place of wealth, what it is and what it isn't, and then do not squander it the moment that you pass on into glory. Wealth is best gained slowly. Number six, wealth is stolen through injustice. This is another major emphasis in Proverbs. Wealth is stolen through injustice. The allure of wealth is vividly seen in the willingness of men to perpetuate all kinds of of moral and ethical crimes against neighbors in order to acquire wealth. The book of Proverbs highlights this evil, acknowledging that poverty is not only a consequence of foolishness. The book of Proverbs does recognize that poverty can be a consequence of injustice. Let's look at Proverbs 13, verse 23, which really summarizes this this principle very well. Proverbs 13, verse 23, Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. In other words... The poor have, will have the ability, walking in wisdom, to find food. And that's an analogy there that they'll have us, the, the opportunity to grow. But that opportunity can be taken away by injustice. Now Proverbs identifies several kinds of injustice which can steal wealth from the poor. Number one, withholding Rightful payment or wages. That's one injustice that Proverbs describes. Withholding rightful payment or wages. In other words, it is injustice not to give someone what is due to, to them. Uh, let me just give you an example. If, if, someone, if, if someone has, if, if you've agreed to buy something from someone and, and then you hold on to the money that is due them or you've agreed to some kind of financial transaction, and and then you don't follow up on your side of the deal, and you hold on to that money, or someone has done something for you, and you take your time, even though you have that money, and you don't give them what is due, their, their, their labor. Notice Proverbs 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Or more specifically, Proverbs 11, verse 24, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. In other words, there's a consequence to that kind of injustice. God will judge. Do not withhold what is due. Number two, another form of injustice is taking advantage of those who have suffered calamity. Notice Proverbs 11, verse 26. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. What is Solomon talking about here? He's talking about how the marketplace would work in the ancient world. Grain was that that most important thing of life, and it was that which most represented wealth and prosperity, having food and lots of it. 
But as was the practice of sinful men then as today, that what would happen in those days would be that the few people who, who had all the grain would take advantage of a famine. And though the people needed to, to buy the grain, those who hoarded that grain, those who controlled that grain would purposefully keep it from entering the market so as to drive up the price and then capitalize on the famine. That's what happened in ancient times, and that's what Solomon is referring to about withholding the grain as opposed to him who sells it. Proverbs 17 verse 5, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Notice that, rejoices at calamity. You know, getting excited about the opportunities that come when calamity comes upon a certain neighbor. An opportunity to capitalize. And Proverbs denounces that. 28 verse 8, Proverbs 28 verse 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. The times when interest and usury would be used at that time would be when there are those who are desperate. It's like payday loans today. Someone is desperate to try to to buy food or desperate to try and pay a bill. And and they come and they're willing to give up all kinds of stuff in order to get that little little bit of money. That's That's what usury is, taking advantage of someone's desperation by charging exorbitant interest rates. And the the wise men of Proverbs say, that is not the way of wisdom. You You cannot capitalize on the desperation and calamity of the poor. Number three, employing fraudulent business practices. There's a lot of talk in Proverbs about a false balance and about unjust weights. And what would happen in those days is, you know, they, they would have these different these different stones or these different portions of, of casted metal where the weight would be indicated on that stone, that, that stone or that piece of metal, and they would use that in the scales. And what was even common in that day, as it would be today, would be that sellers, those who are engaged in the marketplace, would have a stone that would actually be heavier than its marked weight and a stone that would be lighter than its marked weight. And depending on whether the... the, the the, the buyer, the, the, the seller is, is buying or selling, he would use whatever weight is going to profit him. It's fraud. And the book of Proverbs says this is what steals wealth. Number four, exploiting the inability of the poor to defend themselves. Proverbs 18 verse 23, the poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. He fears nothing. And so he abuses the fact that no one will listen to the poor, so he can treat the poor as he likes. In fact, he can trample all over the poor's rights. No one will defend him. Or Proverbs 23, verse 10, Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. The picture here is knowing that there's a family that is without a father, and they have a field, and you know what? Who's going to protect the field? The father's gone. Someone moves in and harvests the grain, leaves them with next to nothing. And the book of Proverbs condemns that kind of practice. Number five, 
paying bribes to create an unequal playing field. Proverbs 17, verse 8, a bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Solomon recognizes that bribes have this effect. You can buy off people, but don't leave it there. Proverbs 17, verse 23, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. To show partiality, Proverbs 28, verse 21 says, is not good because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. Means that, you know, knowing the nature of man, he'll do anything to gain wealth. He will transgress. He will pay bribes. He will lie. Number six, appropriating wealth by force. Appropriating wealth by violence. Proverbs 22, verse 22 to 23, do not rob the poor because he is poor. Or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Or even this scenario in Proverbs 28 verse 24. He who robs his father or his mother and says, it is not a transgression. Is the companion of a man who destroys. Now indeed, foolish behaviors that do entrench men on the path to poverty, must be rightly identified. They, they must be rebuked. We must not refrain from calling out those practices which will lead to poverty. We must, we must be corrective in that. However, we must never ridicule the poor man. The poor, too, are image bearers. And to mock them is to ridicule their Creator. Proverbs 14.31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. Or Proverbs 17, verse 5, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. And Proverbs is clear that whether in this life or in the next, the Lord will bring vengeance upon those who have become wealthy through injustice. Proverbs 22, verse 16, he who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 22, verses 22 to 23, we already read that one, but notice the Lord will plead the case of the poor and take the life of those who rob them. Proverbs 23, verses 10 to 11, the Lord is the redeemer. He will protect the fatherless. So don't even think of abusing them. Number seven, wealth is given to be shared. Wealth is given to be shared. Now, this particular principle we will deal with in great length next week. So I will move through this very quickly, but we must introduce it here. A miserly approach to the acquisition of wealth circumvents God's purpose for giving it. God shares his abundance with individuals in order that they may partake in the joy that he has in sharing abundance. God has given us wealth in order to make the lives of others better. Proverbs identifies three specific categories of those who are worthy beneficiaries of a man's wealth. Number one, the deserving poor. Now what I mean by the deserving poor is this. The Proverbs does not commend or, or exhort us to give to the poor who are poor because of foolishness. 
In the words of the Apostle Paul, he who does not work shall not eat. Very clear on that. But the book of Proverbs recognizes what is called the deserving poor. Those who are poor for one of two reasons. Poor either because of what we call moral evil. They're poor because of the injustices of others. They're deserving of our generosity. And they are poor because of what we call natural evil. Calamities. Wildfires. Earthquakes. Famines. These are the kinds of things that must motivate us to generosity. They have landed in that position through no fault of their own. We must recognize that and respond accordingly. Therefore, for example, Proverbs 22 verse 9, he who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. Or Proverbs 28 verse 27 He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Proverbs equates giving to the needy, giving to this category, as giving to the Lord himself. And as we're going to see next week, the Lord will never remain any man's debtor. He will repay. For example, Proverbs 14, verse 31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And then in Proverbs 19, verse 17, we read that one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. The Lord will not remain a man's debtor. You give to those who are in true need. You give to the Lord, and the Lord promises to give it back to you. A second category of those who are worthy recipients of our charity and generosity is, as we've looked at already, one's own family. A good man, Proverbs 13, verse 22 says, leaves an inheritance to his children and the wealth of the sinners stored up for the righteous. The good man shares in his wealth with his family. And if you look at Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, there's the example of the the God-fearing woman, the excellent wife, and notice All of her activities, all of her efforts are designed for the flourishing of her family. Her generosity spills over to benefit her entire family. And if that's the case for the excellent wife, how much more the God-fearing man should be generous and giving in abundance for his own family. Another category is this, one's employees. In fact, I would say this, a key indicator of honorable wealth is that it serves not only to improve your condition, not only to improve the condition of of your family, but also honorable wealth will spill over and benefit others as well. Notice this interesting proverb in this, this teaching in Proverbs 27 verses 23 to 27. Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds, their stewardship. For riches are not forever, nor does the crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, new growth is seen, and the herbs for the mountains are gathered, uh, and, uh, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will be for your clothing, and the goats will bring the price of a field. So he's describing here this slow pattern of growth. The accumulation of prosperity. But notice its impact. There will be enough goat's milk for your food. For the food of your household. 
and then for the sustenance of your maidens. In other words, as you have the proper attitude towards wealth, the generosity that you have received from the Lord and that growth of prosperity has this spillover effect. It goes, first, it, it, it gives you the food that you need. You, you then share it with your own household, and then it even sustains other people in their employment as well. It has this, this spillover effect. William Perkins, as, as he articulated what would be the Puritan work ethic, He he described it in these words. Notice how he described it. And and, and notice the progression here. Perkins said this, quote, We must so use and possess the goods we have that the use and possession of them may tend to God's glory and the salvation of our souls. Just pause there for a minute. He's not saying that we can buy our salvation. He's talking about the betterment of Mankind and, and the bringing of the gospel to mankind, riches are to, to be used towards that end. He goes on to say this, our riches must be employed to necessary uses. These are first, the maintenance of our own good estate and condition. Secondly, the good of others, especially those that are of our family or kindred. Thirdly, the relief of the poor. Fourthly, the maintenance of the church of God and true religion. And then fifth, the maintenance of the commonwealth. There was the recognition among the Puritans that a proper work ethic was, would result in this spillover effect. As wealth was slowly accumulated, it could not remain in the hands of the possessor. It had to spill over and benefit others. That's what God intended it to do. Finally, number eight, wealth is only temporary. Proverbs teaches that riches make a great servant, but a horrible, ruthless master. At best, wealth is temporary. It does not solve the greatest problems of the day, nor does it meet the greatest needs of life. Like man, wealth is but a vapor. Proverbs teaches that as well. And we must end our study with this point. Proverbs 11 verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but it's righteousness that delivers from death. Proverbs 11 verse 28, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Proverbs 23, verses 4 to 5, summarize it so well. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you have set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Proverbs 27, verse 24. Riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. That's the fundamental principle we must remember. That yes, we've been given the responsibility and the privilege, the opportunity to toil in this world. And even among the thorns and the thistles, with biblical wisdom, we can be thankful for the opportunity to gain wealth. God gives that even to us. And through that, we come to enjoy life better. And we we come to be able to bless others more. But in the end, it's not wealth that saves us. 
It's not wealth that will deliver us in the day of wrath. The Puritan Thomas Fuller said this, Riches are long in getting with much pains, hard in keeping with much care, quick in losing with more sorrow. Riches may leave us while we live. We must leave them when we die. Or in the words of Job, naked was I born into this world and naked will I leave. And that leads us to a final warning that I want to leave with you men tonight. As much as we have talked about wealth, even in positive terms, with those careful qualifications, those reminders, we must remember this, that wealth is a danger. It is a danger. Jesus said in Luke 18 verse 24, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, no one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And some of you here tonight may be very wealthy, or you may just love the idea of becoming wealthy. And you have this idea that you can serve both God and money at the same time. That you can look on both of them as being of equal priority in your life. Well, in the words of Jesus, you cannot do that. You cannot serve both God and money. You can only have one God. And be careful with wealth because, as Thomas Brooks said, that while adversity has slain her thousands, prosperity has slain her tens of thousands. In the words of another Puritan, Concerned about the materialism that was developing in New England, he said this, Good religion gave birth to prosperity, but her daughter, the daughter of the church, devoured the mother. In other words, the church taught and cultivated a proper attitude towards the things of this world and good stewardship. But what happens in this sinful world where wealth is so appealing to the flesh? that prosperity turns around and devours the church. And so my challenge to you men is this, who is your God? Knowing that you cannot serve both God and money, what is it? What is your God? What do you worship? What is that central influence in your life? What is the thing that you live for? The thing that you think of first when you get up in the morning and the thing that you think of last as you lay your head on the pillow? What is it? And some of you men here tonight may even need, even now, to repent in that most significant way and turn from the idol of money and gold to the one true and living God. To that place in your life where you can really say, as we sang earlier this evening, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other, 
my soul is satisfied in him alone. Men, is your soul satisfied in Christ alone? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing the doxology tonight. We're going to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Before we do that, let's look to the Lord and ask him to make the true state of our heart evident to our understanding. Heavenly Father, as we come before you with this warning from the words of your Son, that it is incredibly hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We are quickly reduced to embarrassment, to shame at how so often we have valued wealth and believed that it is the way of salvation, that it is the way of joy and contentment and peace in this life. And just like the gambler who thinks it's the next cast of the die that will bring him his true happiness, we day after day keep searching for that and the next dollar that comes. You've said it never will. Father, in our hearts for those of us who have already come to know you and have already received the benefit of the greatest gift, that of salvation, teach us to view this world correctly. To, to walk this very fine line between valuing wealth as you have intended it to be and not becoming enslaved to it, of seeing it as a, as a slave and not our master, of using it to your purposes rather than f- trying to find our fulfillment in it. And I also pray for those who are listening, who are here, who find themselves constantly at the base of that idol, worshiping day after day the dollar. Words of Jesus also speak with them, as hard as it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven with God, all things are possible. Break through their covetous hearts. Open their eyes to see the infinite value of something far greater That is the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and His glorious gospel. Do that work in their lives, we pray. Amen.